0: the fire within podcast. You need a sustainable plan, the right mindset, and the knowledge and inspiration to stoke the fire within. Just like the phoenix, you can burn your old habits, never turn back, and emerge completely anew. There are no shortcuts.
1: Welcome fire within community. This is the fire within podcast where we talk about all things health, fitness, and nutrition. I'm your host, Brandon, with my co-host, Joe. Hello. Hey Joe, we got a cool guest today. Uh, we have Lance Pendleton. Uh, he currently is working with Compass Realty, works with their sales team, and he's also a behavior and wellness specialist. So I'm super excited to have him on the show. Welcome Lance.
2: Hey, how you all doing today? Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little bit in your own words about what you do, how you got into it and things like that, and then we'll find some fun topics to dig into.
2: Sure. I So I actually got into what I do kind of accidentally, which is a great experience for me and a great opportunity for me. I currently am the head of agent strategy and success for Compass. I help all of Compass's real estate agents, about 30,000 of them across the country, understand how to sort of get out of the blockers and the systems that they've sort of bad habits and patterns have gotten into. And then how do you start thinking about growing your business? increasing your GCI by focusing in on humanistic relationships. A lot of what I work on is helping folks get out of their own way and change their mind about certain things they've been thinking for a long time. Um, and I got into it actually accidentally. I worked for Apple a lot of years ago, worked in the retail side. And I had this opportunity to teach what they used to call Apple Core, which was their introduction to to new employees joining the retail side of it. And through that, I started to learn i had this amazing experience where i started recognizing here's a bunch of people that love technology but their job is to explain it to people who couldn't care at all about technology right what an amazing just socio uh sociological experiment i started studying and learning a lot about behavioral psychology and the, and the science of well-being and how it engaged and how people connected to other people and then that without going into a lot of detail shifted over into like Really working amongst the largest population of independent workers in the country, which is real estate agents. It's also the largest employer of women across the country as well, too. You know, sort of a strange transition up into that, but I really found it was a lot of fun and very rewarding. And I've been with Compass now for about four years. And so that's how I landed in doing what I do.
1: Now, what are some of the, I guess, negative patterns that people get into?
2: It's funny. I don't really think of it in as much as like negative patterns per se. I, I know you, you had a weight loss journey. I had a weight loss journey. We talked about that. What just really quickly, you you lost what?
1: About 84 pounds.
2: Yeah. So again, I was a grew up a skinny little kid, played hockey, played baseball. All of a sudden my life took a hard rate turn. Mental health started to decline, substance abuse started to increase, and the next thing I know, I was at probably about 270 some odd pounds, and I ended up losing about 90 pounds myself over the course of two years. And so a lot of that experience for me, and you'll hear me talk about this, one of my all-time favorite sayings and like my mantra or my motto is, all wisdom is plagiarism, only stupidity is original. And. So nothing you're going to hear from me today is anything of great cosmic wisdom that I'm sharing with you. I've just had the pleasure of learning from some really amazing people over the years in different ways and piecing those things together to be a helpful use and service to others, I guess. But in that weight loss journey, one of the things that I realized was that there's no bad habits per se, or like the things that we think of like things that I should stop doing. It's a lot more about understanding where they started from nothing is really so black and white, right? And, and a lot of the areas that we operate in our world, in our life is we try and we try to avoid feelings. We try to avoid dealing with certain things. And that's the first step in my humble opinion to actually creating sort of bad habits and, and progressive things that don't lead you anywhere good. So a weight loss is really, my experience first started with awareness. Yeah. And when you have awareness as to why is something happening and what's going on there, it makes it a lot easier to then unblock yourself and start opening up a little bit being a little more vulnerable and then really seeing some transformational change. I was sitting on a couch eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and literally just like right out of the, right out of the, the, the box there. And I was flicking through and I threw on this documentary called Food Inc. And like halfway through this documentary, I sat there and I was like, I have no idea what the hell I'm putting into my body. Like, why am I just doing this to myself? I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I am, I'm exhausted all the time. I don't sleep well. Hell, I sweat while I eat. Like d- this isn't who I am. What's going on there, and why did all this happen? That began that awareness piece of why am I doing this to myself, and what I didn't realize I didn't have a shot at actually taking care of myself because I was competing against corporations and all the big big money factors of fat, sugar, salt, and all the things that you know in your world. So it was a really long winded way to kind of tell you, like <laughs> I don't really feel like there's blockers and things that people have that come from, hey, this is bad and you should change it. You kind of got to understand the bad and live with the bad and acknowledge it as part of that process of of working through it.
1: So it sounds like awareness is the most important thing.
2: The first step to change is awareness. Yeah. Avoidance is never going to work, right? It's, it's I'm sure you you experience folks that come to you and say, I want to uh, get stronger. I've got lower back pain. I've got all the different reasons that people want to get healthier and their motivations behind that. If they're never addressing, well, how did it get this way to begin with? Or why is this happening? Or why do you feel this is a problem? Or why has it been difficult for you to even come to this point in your life in that journey? It's just like, you're gonna come, you can do it for a bit and then you just taper off and disappear.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what, what I started to notice is patterns over the years and why I tried to shift to more sustainable model. I feel like you said avoidance doesn't work. It, it does in the short term. Somebody could do keto for a little bit and avoid carbs or they can do this for a little bit. And I really try and help clients find something in the middle. Where on their birthday, they can still have cake, they can occasionally have bacon, and then try and find what works specific to their body and their cultural influences, their social influences. And it really should be bespoke. I don't think there's two people that should be eating the same.
2: Totally. I, I, I completely agree. And I from a just like a place where I see a lot of folks get stuck, I know I got stuck, is in the I can't. Yeah. Right. The second you frame something is like, I can't eat X, you're, that's it, you're done. So it's a lot of that, that mental process of like, where do you feel you can stop being restrictive around things and create better balance through stuff?
1: And What I try and redirect is not so much that you can't, but instead, let's find a better version of that yeah. um, as an option. So, so sometimes that's helpful.
2: Unless you're talking about bacon and then there's just no better version of it. It's just it's, <laughs> bacon. it's Turkey bacon
1: is awful. Just eat the real stuff. That is yeah, one of
0: the yeah, things exactly. that they just can't I, you know. They can't come up with something that tastes like bacon. Like you can get ice cream that's ice cream flavor that's better for you. You can get a like salad, a lot of stuff you can do. But they can't quite well, crack bacon. You, you can do nitrite, nitrate-free bacon
1: with no antibiotics added, and that's what I advocate. That's
2: just still bacon, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's still bacon, but it's <laughs> better bacon.
2: And, and the people that try and create fake bacon, all they're doing is adding smoked flavor to it, and I'm like, yeah, no, this is not like, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get it. You're you trying. It's good for the driver. like those
1: dog treats, the bacon strips. Dogs don't know. It's bacon. Yeah,
2: yeah. dogs know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Why well, they've never had bacon. Joe does these fake advertisements that are spoofs. Maybe we ought to do one for bacon strips. Fake bacon. That yeah. would be fun. Turkey bacon. Yeah. Good for no one. Now with behavioral psychology, uh, can you break down some of the elements of what that entails? What kind of, I don't know. I don't know much about it other than, oh, I know behavior change and some of those models.
2: So don't think of it in as much as like the this, the scientific aspects of behavioral psychology. Think of it much more in why people do what they do and how we're more alike than we are different, right? A lot of the elements and the reasons of the re- of things that we do many times are pre-programmed at us very early on. There's some theories in thinking that by the time you're seven years old, a lot of the behavioral traits and aspects that we develop are already locked in there. And so the, what you end up in seeing in, in adult world, adult life are a lot of things that sometimes we are pre-programmed in a lot of ways for, right? And a lot of those things carry tremendous similarities. There's an old saying of relate, don't compare. If you look more about the different elements of how we relate to one another and how we connect through that process, the root is, what is a behavior that I'm seeing? Where is that coming from? Why does that exist? And then how do we start to think about, and it's not always change, how do we work with? Are there elements of that are strengths? Are there elements of that could pose as weaknesses? And then how do we use both sets of that to move forward?
1: So let's take weight loss as an example. If that's somebody's goal, how how do you start to pick that apart from a behavioral therapy side or a behavioral psychology side?
2: Yeah, again, and let's be super clear. I am not a licensed therapist. So right, I'm right, sure right. That nobody's out there going, Lance told me. I will say that um, I think a, a good starting point is to look at why do I want this change in my life, right? What's the motivating factor? Because I've yet to see people have long-term success around goals like that, where the motivating factor is external and not internal. So if I'm losing weight for my wife, if I'm losing weight for the kids, if I'm losing weight because my mom pointed out that I'm starting to look fat, like if those are the reasons, right? And that, by the way, that last analogy might not actually be a lie. That might've been something that my mother said recently. Um, (laughs) That's that's like an element of, you have to start with why is it meaning something to you? Why is it important to you? And then you want to start at that foundational level of taking that and building from there. Because for a lot of folks, it's an external stimuli and it's not really addressing what's the driver. Some people, as we all know, I mean, you know this, people eat for comfort, people eat from shame, people eat to, to process feelings, anxiety, depression. There's all kinds of reasons where food becomes that substitute. But at a certain point, we get on that hamster wheel where it becomes automatic. And you're not even aware of the fact that you're sitting on the couch and you just cracked open the the bag of chips again, and we're just doing what we do. So I think the key behavioral element that I look for is first understanding is what's the why? And is the why strong enough to help somebody recognize, do I really want this type of change in my life? Is this something that's going to be beneficial to me? And is it important right now for the right reasons?
1: Yeah. So uh, we've talked a bit about find your why and Simon Sinek and stuff like that. And and that intrinsic motivation, I also like the Paul Riddick exercise where you ask why seven times and really get deep down to the root. But I think that intrinsic versus external is, is a really important part and a powerful driver.
2: Totally. And I know for, for you, what would you say your why was in your journey?
1: It started with, I think, personal confidence for me. Like I saw pictures of myself on social media and I couldn't believe that was me. Uh, That was embarrassing. And that was the start, uh, six months of my memory from being in an insomniatic pattern of sleep deprivation and poor eating. Like that chunk of my life's gone. I don't Mm -hmm. recall anything from it. And then also uh, I have a family history of heart disease. So I want to leave a better legacy for my wife. I have a kid on the way, September 8th. And I don't want to repeat that pattern. I never met my dad's parents. They died before he was 14, a heart disease. And I lost my dad two years ago to heart disease. And my mom's got heart disease. So this is where the stars change. It's
2: super interesting. And if you of the three different things that you said, which one do you think was the biggest driver in the beginning?
1: In the beginning, it's just confidence. I hated myself. That's a really bad feeling.
2: Do you think that the food was why you hated yourself? Or do you think there was like other underlying factors that the food was just masking?
1: I don't know, but to be honest, my focus as I gained the weight was I was composing a lot. I was in college and then really I grew up a chunky kid. I did cross country for no other reason than to lose weight. That was it. I didn't Mm. enjoy running. I was like, running sucks. Uh, But I did it and it kept the weight off. And then I got into marathons and I was like, wow, I could eat anything I want and I'm still skinny. And then my joints started breaking down. I started going into the ortho every month, ended up with a knee surgery. And I'm like, okay, I got to address this food thing because because you could run some of it off, but hormonally and what's going on inside your body, there's major breakdown. So it had to be addressed.
2: Super interesting. I, I always ask people to take a, a good, long, hard look sometimes at like when you think about that starting point and that motivating factor for you. Is the thing that you're trying to solve for the actual thing or is there something underlying? It's hard for us sometimes to understand what those things may be and what they are. But I know for me as an example, as you said, I was skinny kid growing up. I played a lot of sports, but I was playing hockey all the way up until I got hurt and then really couldn't play anymore. But hockey-wise, I was burning 8,000 calories a day. So you go from that type of an element into all of a sudden, it's as you said, I can eat whatever I want whenever. I was, was never a thing. I'm going to have two eye trays. Nope. Yeah, right. It was like, now all of a sudden it's like, you know, cake for dessert. Hell, I'd cake for breakfast. I was like, that was never really a, a a concern for me. And then one day, all of a sudden, it's just, nope. That behavior that we learned, that process that I had gotten into, where food for me became a way of distraction and comfort, almost like an autonomous process where I was able to reward as a reward mechanism. I was like, that can't be the reward mechanism anymore. Yeah. Right. And then, what do you fuel in that void with? And how do you actually then work through that process? It's hard.
1: Yeah. So, what was a good alternate reward mechanism for you?
2: Alcohol, which then led to a whole separate problem for me. And I've been sober now for you know 14 years. But wow. you know, for for me, it's like, how do you get from that space in that place, right, where you are trying to fill a hole, where food and relationships and booze, you. you I was trying to fill a void there. It was a long time before I recognized that self-esteem, self-worth, codependency, those major drivers in my life were actually big reasons why I would then eat uncontrollably or drink excessively or do things of that nature because they were distractors. They were the things that helped me feel better comfort about myself to fill that hole in some capacity. So I think for a lot of folks, it's not just that, for me, I was like, what's in my body, right? Like, why am I needing this, that awareness piece? then led me to the next piece of discovery and understanding of certain things to go, wait a second, I don't need to live this way. And and for some folks that comes easily and for some folks it comes hard. And it's a reoccurring process that I think everybody's gotta kinda find their own path through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The views and opinions expressed on this show are not meant to be used as medical advice. Consult your doctor before implementing any health or exercise changes. The Fire Within encourages you to do your own research and aims to spark interest and motivation to a healthier lifestyle.
1: Hey, Fire Within Nation, has this ever happened to you? You go online to find a quick recipe for mashed potatoes, but first you have to hear about Grandfather's Farm in 1929. When I was <laughs> a boy. <laughs> the first time you had a potato, and like six and a half chapters later, you get to the ingredient list. Tasted like dirt. It drives me nuts. So, me and Joe have worked to solve that issue for you. If you head to firewithinnf.com and check out the recipe section, healthy recipes, following the Fire Within way. And it's just the recipe, no blog. You're welcome. You'll find recipes like steak chimichurri. There's a bananas foster smoothie recipe. There's a sourdough French toast, lots of healthy things, make your own ranch dip and and tons more. So head to firewithinnf.com, check out the recipe section and enjoy. Now to change the subject just a little bit, Scott told me that you had some insight into dog psychology. And I know a lot of a lot of my, my clients are, are pet owners. I love my dog more than any most any person except for my wife.
2: Yeah, I, so I have, I've got two giant St. Bernards and the dogs my entire life. Rescue dogs and dogs from breeders and the whole nine yards, but one of my first favorite experiences in understanding behavioral psychology was I, and I still throw this out to people. I'm like, well, "Who is the greatest behavioral psychologist in the world today?" And people will start naming all times the top PhD folks and things like that. I'm like, "Nope, Caesar Milan. Yeah, Caesar <laughs> Milan is the greatest behavioral psychologist of all time." And every time Caesar Milan gets interviewed, they're like, "Oh, you're the greatest dog trainer in the world." Blah blah blah. And he's like, "No, I, I'm I'm not a dog trainer. I." That's not what I do. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're the dog whisperer. He's like, no, I don't treat dogs. I treat people. (laughs) It's like a dog has thousands of years of DNA encoded in it to behave and operate and function in a certain way. What disrupts that? People. We do. Right? Our fur babies. This idea that there's a dog that's trying to find its order in a pack. Because that's pack mentality that we then get into treating as if it's a human. And it just completely disrupts this function. And then you look at it and we give human emotion to dogs. So you open a door, you come into somebody's house and that dog all of a sudden is all up in your business. And there's like this frenetic excitement and its head's bobbing up and down and it's yapping at you and it's going all nuts. And it's like jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping. It's like this frenetic thing that's happening. And what does a human say? Oh, Cindy's so excited to see you. Aren't you, Cindy? Cindy's excited. No, Cindy's not excited. Cindy's having a massive anxiety attack. That's actually what's happening. Like that's literally inside the dog. What's happening is just this relentless anxiety and and tension. But what do we do? We think it's cute. And we're like, oh, it's it's just like this, like this happiness. No happiness in a dog is when the dog comes over, walks over, sniffs you twice and goes and lays down.
1: Well, my that's dog happy. must be really freaking happy because after, after <laughs> 10 to 15 seconds, she's
2: done. Shiba Inu is the happiest well, breed according they, to that they've
1: definition. They've got the <laughs> be happiest because she couldn't give two shits. Right. <laughs> and,
2: and, and, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that's, and here's the thing. You say that, but you've got, what type of dog do you have? Is she new? Shiba Inu. Shiba Inu. Okay, there you go. Have you ever met anyone else with a Shiba Inu? Well,
1: yeah, we go to meetups. We have one actually Sunday. Okay, okay cool. Yeah.
2: So have you ever seen the one that isn't as chill
1: as yours? Most are pretty chill. They, they just ignore each other. And like when she first, somebody comes to the door, it's five to 10 seconds. Yeah. That, and then she, especially if she knows them, then she's good. Right. Yeah. But she seems to get even more frenetically excited and squeal if it's somebody she really likes and hasn't seen in a long time. Clean. Cool. Like, yeah.
2: That's that, and that's good. I think what I'm getting at though is you're going to probably see certain of that breed. And that's a breed type, right? That's an instinctive thing. They're very it. distinctive. I've never found right? another breed. And it's like, but you're going to see those some that are like that five minute or the sorry, you see that five, 10 second thing that you get is eight minutes long. Yeah, that's a whole other. Don't even get me started on Labradors, but the, that's a whole other conversation for another day. But like the thing that you tend to see though is because when the behavior of anxiety first starts at a dog. Human beings apply human emotions and things into that, and they just feed it.
1: Yeah.
2: Rather than actually calming down and being like, no, there's no need for that. It's not necessary. I'm the pack leader. I'm in charge. So I love the Caesar Milan aspect of it. It's fascinating because it's like Caesar will always say, I train humans. And his main three things that you always look at are it's exercise, discipline, then affection. Hmm. And we reverse that order every time. It's always like section. Yeah. I take you for a walk. And then I'm like, no, stop it. Don't do that. Stop it. It's like the whole order gets reversed by what we end up incorporating in that. It, it is an amazing thing to watch because every time you watch Caesar work, it's just like rules, boundaries, and limitations. Yeah. Every relationship I've ever seen in the world that goes well, it's because there's healthy rules, boundaries, and limitations. Whether they're work relationships, interpersonal relationships, marriage relationships, there's a confidence that comes through that. So he's, I I always say it's it's really funny to watch him work because I'm like, you can apply it to almost anything.
1: Yeah. Now that's interesting. Doug's pick up on that too. One of my mentors, James Hess, he helped train Molly and I left him with there over there for a week when I went on, It's probably my honeymoon or something. And when I got back, she was a different dog and she doesn't quite, like I'm a pushover. She doesn't respond as much to me, but he is just so authoritarian and dominant, but she listened to him. And because of that, there are several times where she pulled free of my hand and immediately Mm -hmm. sat because that's what he trained her to do. I didn't train her to do that. And I would not have a dog today because she likes to chase car tires had he not spent that time
2: with her. And and let's dig into that for a second. Cause what's really interesting is that's purely based on trust. Yeah. That's it. He just built trust with what, what's your dog's name? Molly. Molly. So he just built trust with Molly. And Molly built trust with him and recognized human is trustworthy. Human is okay. And I don't need to exult in this frenetic energy because I know where my place is, I know where my station is, and I'm okay with that. That will that you get Molly back, and all of a sudden, why does Molly do that? Because there's trust built in there now. You're okay. I trust you to take care of me and vice versa. So that most of the time when you see people's dogs that are just all over the place, rarely, and again, there are legitimate reasons why the dog might have developmental issues or might have physical issues that we're not aware of, but like most of the time, it's just a complete and total breakdown of trust.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now. now let's see if we can segue this conversation back over to the human psychology side. Yeah, it's almost like most
2: random... <laughs> The segues ever. This is great. Like next we'll talk about peanut butter. <laughs> so
1: we were talking about with my mentor training, Molly, and this whole trust issue and she being okay with that. Is there any way that can happen with people when they think about the relationship with food and exercise to, to where there's some kind of switch that gets
2: flipped? Sure. Well, think about the first thing. Most folks want to work with somebody who's had the experience themselves. Yeah. Because you've had the experience and you understand what that's like. It's easier to develop empathy and the key components of building a healthy relationship. That's the foundation of trust. If I was born devilishly handsome, I, if I was born one of the Winklevoss twins, I don't know who that is. Oh my gosh, the, 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 the Facebook dudes. That you, they're, they're basically like, if you looked up golden child perfection, that was all you get. But if I was born devilishly handsome, I could eat whatever I wanted. I got ripped really easily. Like I just was an Adonis. I don't think if I had that going for me and I said, Hey, let me teach you how to lose weight. Let me teach you how to take care of yourself mentally and, and physically. You, you're not, there's not a lot of trust you're going to have in there. It's not really even a thing at this point in time, because right off the bat, someone's like, dude, you wake a thin, jacked, and, and, and handsome. That's not a thing. Whereas if someone understands and we story tell around our experiences in life and they get to understand that part of you, then they go, I trust you. So that's a first so major component. First component that, yeah, with our
1: dog analogy.
2: Yeah, it's a foundation.
1: I work best through comparisons and analogies, so this is good.
2: Cool, the cool, good news is most people do. That's <laughs> how we relate to each yeah, other. Yeah,
1: I have but. to compare something to something, and then it makes sense. Maybe that's why I hate math because you can't compare the Pythagorean theorem to anything except the Pythagorean theorem, I'm like, this is dumb. I don't like it.
2: Yeah, and I can't even spell Pythagorean. So we're <laughs> all done. Yeah. But the other question for for both of y'all is: What do you start with now? Personally, what's the thing that you're feeling stuck with in life current?
1: Yeah, I think financial growth would be the biggest thing. I think that's my biggest block. Cool, Joe. Because we have this baby coming and it's just looming, man. I know there's going to be more expenses.
0: Maybe for one of the first times in my life, I would say I'm really not stuck on anything right now. I'm in a, I'm in a season where I'm not particularly struggling with any one thing. Which has, okay. I guess, that leads to anxiety, feeling like, when is the shoe going to drop? Because it's not a state I spend a lot of time in. <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that's completely normal. I, I always say, if you ever want to watch me just like absolutely implode, tell me good news. <laughs> I can handle shit. I can handle like horrible life things. Like, I'm great. Someone's like, you're getting a promotion. I'm like, oh God, no, don't do that. That's not okay. About- <laughs> yeah. um, so, no, no, no I, I get you.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I've gotten to watch. This stage growing, Joe, in three years, like his business is going gangbusters.
0: I, his home life is good. He's, he's just. I used to be super stressed out and yeah. I put in a lot of work to fix some of the things that were creating that circumstance in my life. Some of my behaviors that were leading to it, overworking, misprioritizing certain aspects of my life. And when you get to, when you work for yourself, you get this like window of opportunity to redesign. And you can't really blame somebody else or a circumstance because you're like, well, I could fix it. I guess I'm in charge of that. I should probably take care of that particular aspect of it. But yeah, so I think it does feel like I, probably if I'm struggling with anything, it's like guilt of feeling like my life is going pretty good and I don't deserve that. Yeah. yeah,
1: actually, we, we were talking yesterday, and he kept saying, I feel spoiled, but then I know the work he's put in, even since like high school, like he, he just works nonstop. So I think he's earned what he has, but I guess it's tough to still feel like you're deserving when you see everybody around you.
2: Yeah. And sometimes that's also a little bit of survivor's guilt. It's a little bit of, like I got to this spot, but I know, as you said, I don't feel like I'm worthy of it. And then it gets into a little bit of why me versus me. How do I then match that? How do I keep it? It seems that it feels daunting because it might be unsustainable. So that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, I actually, I'd rather be in your shoes there than, to have financial concerns.
1: <laughs> Man, I just, I don't know what's going to happen with the kid, baby expenses, and my wife's not going to be able to work
0: for a bit after she delivers. And yeah, everybody figures that out, though. Yeah. Everybody is, I can't afford a kid when they have a kid.
2: <laughs> I'm like yeah. selling household household items to get ready for this thing. Dad, or kids go for top dollar on eBay. You just sell oh, a kid. Yeah, It's not yeah. out. Like.
0: Kind of like a
1: Russian mail-order bride, but... <laughs>
2: yeah. a that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. the, um. So it's super interesting. I, I I hear both of you. And I know that for me, the big thing is in, in these like different life changes of stuff, we go through these processes where it's like the anxiety comes up, but what is that anxiety? And what am I actually really more afraid of? You're talking about the unknown of how do I deal with the financial aspects of it? And Joe, you're talking about the unknown of what comes down the pipe and can I sustain and maintain this type of thing? Like I'm waiting for that other shoe to drop. How do either wh- either of you deal with keeping yourself sort of front and center. So you don't start to spin out into a lot of that stuff.
1: Well, Joe actually did a lot of work on meditation over the last couple of years. And I know that's worked pretty well for him. I'm saying, I'm speaking on your behalf and you're sitting right
0: next to me, but it's true. Yeah. That is, that is accurate. Yeah. And uh, I think also getting, I think the balance is the word that people want you to use. Like they want you to say work-life balance. Which is crap because it's not true. You can't really compare. If you work a 10-hour day and you're like, well, my family is more important to me, so I should spend 20 hours with my family. That's not, a, that's not an option for you. So I think that's a, kind of an understanding that was crap. And really finding what harmony is. Like what makes sense? What lines up with my values? How much time do I want to spend doing certain things? And how much time do I... Working for yourself really freed up a lot of time to really digest this stuff because I don't have to do stuff anymore. Like I don't have to go to meetings. If I go to a meeting now, it's because I choose to have a meeting with somebody, which feels a lot different than, oh, it's that time of the day again, where these meetings that I hate that I don't want to go to. So it really eliminated a lot of excuses and forced me to be like, well, if you don't like this, then why don't you figure out a way to not do it? Or minimize the time that you do it, or just a lot of people don't want to really say, but just be a grown up and realize it's part of your job anyway. Shut up, just don't complain about it. You got to do it. Don't waste so much energy feeling like I don't want to do it. Just you, you got to do it today. So just do it. Shut up.
2: <laughs> and what? What? I you don't want me asking, but what, what kind of meditation did you get into? What were you doing?
0: I did primarily where you focus on your breath, basically. And so we had a guest on not too long ago, and they were talking about the different kinds of it, and I realized that was only one wing of it. And so I don't remember the name of what she called that, but basically it, it wasn't really, I did some guided meditation stuff like that. A lot of breathing exercises. And for me, what it boiled down to, the definition that made a lot of sense for me once I started doing it for long enough, I'm like, oh, I understand what this is. It was really the ability to do one thing at a time and just focus on that one thing so that if I was working, I'm just working. If I'm meditating, I'm just meditating. If I'm hanging out, eating, I'm just eating and not trying to do 400 other things and be so distracted, which is tough in today's day and age when the distractions are so shiny
1: and available. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Totally. Braden. what about you?
1: Yeah, so what helps me the best, honestly, is if I have a task to do. I am calm if I am working, <laughs> if I'm with a client, if I'm, if I got a productive thing going for the business, if I have holes in my schedule where there's nothing to do, I either fill them or panic because there's nothing to do then. But meditation is helpful. Breathing, especially at night, if I can't sleep, makes a big difference. I utilize sauna and steam room quite often. Contrast therapy. And exercise is always a great outlet, unless it's leg day, screw leg day.
2: But Freaking like that,
1: but yeah, honestly, the thing that keeps me the most calm is having something productive to do when it drives my wife.
2: Nuts. I could totally see that. It's interesting. I, I'm on the board of a meditation center and couldn't meditate, so just to talk about how life you know, <laughs> my like oxymoron well,
1: anybody in there,
2: yeah, it's really sad. I did it because I just really love talking to the monks, but it was awesome. Uh, But no, it's so funny because I tried all kinds of different types of meditations and, and things like that. And the only one that has really stuck for me, and it's weird because it was the one that I was like, yeah, I don't know about that, was Transcendental Meditation. And I had discovered pretty quickly that TM for me was like wow, this is like a guilt-free meditation process that I really got into and enjoyed, but I was super worried that it was gonna be like culty and weird and you hear Jerry Seinfeld talk about it and stuff like that. And you're like, no, I don't know what I'm getting into, but it, it actually turned out to be something I really enjoyed.
1: What's a layman's definition of what transmen- sorry, transcendental meditation is?
2: Yeah, TM is really all about a mantra-based meditation in which it is very open to whatever you're doing in that moment for meditation though, is that's fine. And I was like, I was a little worried about sometimes they get sleepy and they're like, okay, so sleep. Yeah. And if I sleep, like, wait, what? And they're like, that's what you needed in that moment. Just like, yeah. Or like, I'm losing this mantra and my mind's all chattery and I'm having a hard time. And they're like, Yeah, and good. So your mind can chatter for that. I was like, shit, this is great, man. I was like, awesome. Can I make pain while I meditate too? Because I'm I like pain They're like, no, nah, we draw the line on that one. But the but it was just a much more forgiving process and also. Helping anchor around and actually the instructional process for it is fantastic, too, because it, it really helps you understand the, the methodology as to why and, and get grounded in something that gives you a little bit of structure, to it. So I, I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I'll look more into TM. I've heard about it. I know a lot of high profile CEOs and all kinds of people utilize it. Is that something Steve Jobs from Apple was into as well?
2: I don't know if Steve was into TM. I know he did have a lot of experiences with meditation, Buddhism, calligraphy in uh, Japanese uh, art. Like There was a lot of things that deeply influenced uh, his work, but I actually actually, don't know if TM was one of them.
1: I found his biography to be the most interesting biography I've ever read. Steve did like just insanely uh, interesting.
2: Yeah, it's, I will say that for most of us, when I was working for Apple, when he passed, and it was one of those ones where you are just, what does anyone do now? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's literally the epicenter of what we all knew and understood as a level of genius. And let me be super clear. Also, a hint of madness in there too. Oh, yeah. Somebody that really struggled with interpersonal relationships and uh, how he treated people and things like that at times too. It was not to be like this Adonis at all. When he passed, it was like, now what? because there was enough vision and creativity and genius in there that you always had a lot of faith in the fact that no matter what came out, it was gonna be super compelling moving forward, but.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did wanna ask you the final question I always ask our guests. What are the top three things you would ask, what you would have somebody do to make a positive difference
2: in their life? One, eat bacon. Now, what are the three things that I would do to have someone make a positive difference in their life? Wow, I think the very first thing, would be to identify a spot that you may not be super happy with and ask yourself, why am I not happy with that spot? And be curious. I I would challenge folks to to have great curiosity in things, not under the sense of like, well, how am I gonna change this? What am I gonna do? Just curiosity to why. The second thing would be to simplify. We have an innate tendency in a world that is really complex. To begin a process of stacking, and we get further and further away from the simplicity of the answers are usually the simplest thing. Yeah. Uh, how do you stay grounded in that? And you know, the, the third thing I would say is to really be honest as to whether or not you have uh, love in your life. And yeah. I know this is really cheesy and hokey and stuff like that, but do I have self love, and do I have the love that I need from others? Both equally. For so many of us, we seek love from other people because we don't have that self-love to where we need. Or so many times we have good self-love, but we feel that we're lacking partnership, connection, meaning in what we do, love of work, love of engagement, things like that. And I think it's very hard to stay forward and moving in a process to work on those parts of ourselves that we really want to if you don't feel like you've got some good solid components of love.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, learn more about what you do with Compass or any of that, what are some good contacts? How could they find Yeah,
2: Lance at LancePedleton.com. You can also my website, LancePendleton.com as well. Actually the website's being rehauled as we speak, so not for the next seventy two hours, but
1: by the time this airs, you'll be good.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's com, and there's a place on there to reach out to me and connect And then I'm happy to chat with anybody about just about their near anything. Yeah,
1: we so appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your insight. I found out about you through Scott Corbin, who's one of my mentors and I think one of the best damn realtors in the triangle, somebody of that caliber, if you're a mentor to him, then, then you must be a big deal.
2: Thanks to both of y'all for having me here too. I know for Scott, Scott's an amazing individual who I've had a great pleasure of working with and I trust me, I learned more from y'all than I can actually impart to anybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this was awesome. So those of you listening, if you've gotten any value from this episode or any other episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple. That's how people find the show and we can continue changing lives. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you did, go check us out at firewithinnf.com and sign up for Refuel, a weekly email with recipes, videos, and tips to stoke the fire within. Also, you can join the Fire Within community by being added to our Facebook group And don't forget to follow us on social media.